Another warm blessing. God bless you guys. How beautiful is that? So great. It's wonderful to be part of the family of faith and the joy and hope that that brings. Congratulations. We're in the middle of a series now, This I Believe. These are the essentials of the faith. We want to lay some foundations. One of the things we've been doing at the beginning of each of these messages is to recite together the Apostles' Creed, which is an historic confession of the Christian faith, over 1,700 years old. All of the tribes and traditions throughout history in the Christian faith have embraced the Apostles' Creed and the 12 theological assertions in the Creed. And so we have been reciting it together. And so I'm going to ask you to stand uh, as you're able right now. And we're going to do the creed again out loud together. Are you ready? I believe in God the Father. You're not ready. (laughs) Were the words not there yet? Sorry. Now we're ready. Here we go. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, if you'll remain standing for our text today, which is in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, beginning at verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And may God inspire and instruct us through his word today. You may be seated. Thank you so much. There are two great things in Christianity, two great things. One is the great commandment, which is to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love your neighbor. It's it's a great command. The second great thing in the Christian faith is the great commission, which we have just read together from Matthew's gospel, chapter 28. And this is where Jesus commands us to go go into all the world and preach the gospel, the good news, and to make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. So we have a great commandment to love God, love your neighbor, and a great commission, which is to go preach the gospel to the world. Now listen to me carefully. Every Christian in the world, that's you and me, every Christian, every local church, every Christian ministry of various sorts and types, all of us should be intentionally and strategically engaged in these two great things. We should all be focused intentionally on loving God and loving our neighbor. 
And we should also be intentionally and strategically engaged in sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to the people around us and to the world at large. Yes, that's where our naming goes. We should all be engaged in these things. Now, let me just remind you that the command of Jesus includes this going. Indeed, the word go from the Revised Standard Version, translation into English version of the Bible, 1,514 times we find the word go. 233 times in the New Testament, 54 times in Matthew's gospel alone. Jesus tells us to go. Go to the lost sheep, go and tell John, go and invite all you meet, go and make disciples. So there's, there's this great commission. Then there is the needs of the people around us. Have you noticed the world is unraveling? Have you noticed gone crazy? I wonder what the world needs more than it needs anything else. You can tell people because there's desperation in our world. There's fear in our world. There's uncertainty in our world. There's confusion in our world. And I want to submit to you that we're all thirsty. And we all have a recognition for a need to quench that thirst. There's confusion in the world and we need clarity. There are so many who have no meaning in their lives, no anchor for their soul. And what we've discovered as Christian people that is in Christ, we have the answer to life's deepest questions. He is our hope. He is our life. Recently, one of the pop artists in our culture said, as a race, we feel empty. This is because our spirituality has been wiped out. We don't know how to express ourselves. And as a result, we're encouraged to fill that gap with alcohol or drugs or sex or money. People out there are screaming for the truth. Now, see if you agree with this statement. People are more ready to hear the hopeful message of the gospel of Jesus Christ more ready than we realize in today's culture. Do you agree? I, I think people are hungry. People are thirsty. People want to know. And all of that doesn't mention that the gospel actually means good news. Literally translated, gospel means good news. We tell others because we feel an urgent desire to pass it on. You have something good happen to you and you want to share it with others. Good news travels fast. I mean, we've just seen all these babies and young people up here a moment ago. When you have a baby, it's like your first baby or your first grandchild. Everybody in your world knows about that baby. Good news travels. Heard the, heard the story of a guy just uh, months after World War II living in Amsterdam, and he went to his priest to make his confession. He said to his priest, I need to tell you that I've been keeping a man in the attic of my house all the way through the war. The priest said, that's not a sin. He said, well, I've been charging him 20 bucks a week. <laughs> he said, well, that's not necessarily bad either. You probably saved his life. And the man said, well, my last question is, do I have to tell him the war's over? <laughs> yes, you have to tell him. You have to tell him. Good news is for telling. We should share the good news. Now, there, there are opposite dangers, of course. There, there are Christian people in the world who are a bit insensitive and not quite tracking in a, in a careful, loving way in the world. I saw a guy just a couple of weeks ago, just before a Ball State football game, I was in my car and uh, one of the intersections near campus, you know, as the football traffic was coming in, uh, the guy's holding a sign. He's just standing there holding a sign. And it said, repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. 
Okay. Okay. It's true, but I'm not, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure the method is particularly sensitive, careful, even loving. I don't know. Maybe it helps somebody. Just not something I would probably do. So there is a, a larger fear, a larger obstruction to sharing the faith in our culture today, and that's fear. I mean, folks are freaked out. I mean, this is, this is an age of cancel culture. If you don't agree with the, the modern pop narrative of our culture, you can easily get canceled, get shut down. It can be very intimidating. It's intimidating anyway to talk to anyone about Jesus, let alone like people you don't even know. Uh, that creates stress. And you, you ask the question, well, what if I don't say the right thing? Or what if they ask me a question I can't answer? Or what will they think of me after, afterwards? And so we wrestle with this whole idea of how do we tell others? We have this huge mandate, this great commission to go and tell. So how do we do that? I want to give you five P words today that will encourage you along the way to find your place in sharing the hope of Christ with others. Five P words. Here's the first one. It's the word presence. Jesus said to his disciples, this is Matthew chapter 5, he said, you are the salt of the earth, salt of the earth. He said, if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything. It's going to be thrown out, trampled by men. Then, he's, then he said, you are the light of the world. So he said, you're the salt of the earth. Remember, he's talking to a bunch of peasants. I mean, common folks like you and me. He said, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. Listen to this next phrase after he said, you're the light of the world. He said, like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. He said, you're like a, a light that can be compared to a city on a hill, which cannot be hidden. He didn't say it should not or, 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 or might not. He said it cannot be hidden. You can't hide from this. This is who you are in the world. You, you are the light of the world. And so we should take our rightful place, knowing that we're, we can't be hidden. We're out there and we're influencing as we go. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. It gives light to everyone. In the same way, he said, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. This is an admonition from the Lord. Jesus is saying to these common folks that they're going into the world to influence the world as salt and light and good deeds. Christians should be the, the wholesome preservative, the beacon for others. I said this a few weeks ago that we don't need better words from the Christian community today. We need better relationships. We need better marriages. We need better families. We need better friendships. We need better churches. That's what the world needs to see, modeled for them, what the way looks like, and to do that with integrity. We hear names in history like William Wilberforce, who almost single-handedly caused the slave trade to end in Great Britain in the middle of the 18th century. And in our own time, names like Mother Teresa, Jackie Pullinger, and others. So you have influence when you are in your home or you are at work or you are at school. And our consistency and our honesty and our truthfulness and our hard work and reliability, the avoidance of gossip, desire to encourage other people, service to others, patience, kindness, generosity, this kind of lifestyle with these manifested values is what will make a difference in the world. Jesus said, go, 
Go. Go and tell. Here's a great verse for you women who live with unbelieving husbands. Look on the screen at 1 Peter chapter 3. If any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. So we have presence. Here's a second P word. Maybe you identify with this. And this is, this is persuasion. And don't hear pressure. Just hear persuasion. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. This is the Apostle Paul. He may be the best example of a life of persuasion. Uh, when he went to Thessalonica, for example, Paul reasoned and explained and proved from the scriptures that the Christ had to, had to suffer and rise from the dead. Some of the Jews were persuaded, Acts chapter 17. In Corinth, same Apostle Paul, while working on tents during the week, he said every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Usually when people raise theological questions and objections, they're genuinely looking for answers. And, you know, the tough questions of life, oftentimes you hear, what about all the suffering in the world? Or what about all the other religions in the world? These are important and serious questions, and they deserve important, serious answers. By the way, if you find yourself in a philosophical conversation like that with someone, I don't know is a good answer. It's okay to say, I don't know. That's my answer to a lot of questions. I don't know. So let me add that it's also true that such questions can be a smokescreen, if you will, to avoid the real issue. Some people want to debate some of these uh, finer theological points, uh, not because they want to know about the theological points, but because uh, of the moral obligations of what it means to be a Christian in the world. So some folks use this as a smokescreen to avoid the whole question of, if I become a Christian, I'm going to have to stop doing a bunch of stuff that I've gotten used to doing. Just heads up about that. So persuasion is an important engagement of, sh of sharing and going and telling the hopeful message of Christ. And here's a third P word. It's proclamation. The heart of telling others is the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's announcing, it's communicating, it's proclaiming the Christian faith. Years ago, the Archbishop of Canterbury, a man by the name of William Temple, wrote his commentary on John's gospel while on his knees. Now, I picture this guy. This is before uh, computer technology. And so he arranges a desk uh, with paper and pen as he's going through the gospel of John and giving comments, writing a commentary on this gospel and he's doing so while on his knees in a, a posture of prayer. He wanted God's insight into this gospel as he wrote the commentary. And he gets to the first chapter, John chapter 1, verse 42. And it says, and he brought him to Jesus. And the he here is Andrew, one of the original 12 disciples. And the him is Simon, Simon Peter. So the verse reads, and Andrew brought Simon Peter to Jesus. Andrew brought Peter to Jesus. That's verse 42 of John chapter 1. Temple wrote a short but profound sentence in his commentary. Now picture him kneeling there praying, Lord, what would I say about this? That a guy named Andrew brought another guy named Peter to Jesus. And this is what Temple wrote, quote, the greatest service that one man can render another. And Andrew 
brought Simon to Jesus. We don't find a lot about Andrew's life in the New Testament. He didn't author any of the New Testament books, but we know that Peter became one of the great influencers in the history of humanity. And someone had to bring this guy who was a great influencer in the world to Jesus, and it was Andrew. In fact, as you read the New Testament, when you see Andrew mentioned, you see him consistently bringing other people to Jesus. This is an amazing, amazing ministry, and it implies this tendency to be invitational. And this is a style of proclamation where you invite people. John chapter 1 says, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee and finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one. Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Je We found the Messiah. To which Nathanael says, Nazareth, can anything possibly good come out of Nazareth? And he was doubting. It's like saying, Dunkirk, how can anything possibly, it's like that, sort of. That's not in my notes. I'm sorry I said that. I don't even know what I was thinking. I was trying to find an analogy. I should have thought of something else. Sorry, no offense uh, much intended, hardly at all. So apparently something good can come out of places like Nazareth. This is one of the most natural things to say, isn't it, to our friends? Come and see, check it out. Let me invite you to come to church with me. This is normal. This is natural stuff. This is what people do. It's, it's very important. I don't normally talk about these things. In fact, I prefer not to. But in this context, I think it might be meaningful to you to know that in the last three years at Union Chapel, the number of people who attend our services on our campus and online has increased by 600 people in the last three years. Let me, yeah, that's pretty good. That's exciting. But here's my point. The reason that a church will grow like ours is growing right now is because people are being invitational. It's not because of some fancy marketing strategy or online presence. You know, all those things are important. We try to do them with excellence, and we do, we do well with that. But it's not the primary reason why a church grows. A church always grows on the margins. Usually, it, the church grows with people who have been associated with the church for two years or less. Isn't that interesting? The longer that you are engaged in a church, the less likely you are to be invitational. And so the church grows on the edge. And so what we know is happening is a bunch of you have got excited about your faith. Maybe you've been baptized. Maybe you've come to, come to a meaningful faith in Christ. You've, you've uh, turned the corner in your life, and you're happy about it. And it's good for you. And so you reach out to people you know in close association and say, come and check this out. This has changed my life. Maybe it will be meaningful to you. And it's a wonderful thing. By the way, we've also, by the end of this year, we will have baptized about 450 people in the last two years. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that amazing? That is so great. Let me, let me tell you another story. This is from Albert McMacken. Most of you do not know that name, Albert McMacken. Let me describe him to you. He was a 24-year-old farmer, young farmer, early 20s, and he came to faith in Christ. And he was so full of enthusiasm that he filled a truck with people and took them to a meeting to hear about Jesus. So there, in the local church, there were some special services going on, and, and a guy was preaching about Jesus, and it went on for several nights. 
And Albert McMacken, so thrilled about his faith, tried to get a truck full of young people to come to these meetings. And there was one particular young man in his late teens that Albert McMacken was trying to get to come to these meetings. But this young man was busy falling in and out of love with different girls. He didn't seem to be attracted to Christianity at all. Eventually, Albert McMacken managed to persuade him to come by asking him to drive the truck. Hey, will you drive this truck take some, and go to this meeting? And he agreed because he wanted him, let him drive the truck. When they arrived, Albert's guest decided to go in. Later, he said he was spellbound, began to have thoughts he'd never known before. And he went back the next night and a couple of nights after that. And until one night, at the end of the service, the man who was preaching invited people to know Jesus Christ in a personal way. And this young man went forward and gave his life to Jesus. That man, that teenage boy, the driver of that truck was Billy Graham. The year was 1934. Billy Graham in his lifetime spoke in person to over 200 million people about the love of God through Jesus Christ. Amazing. He was the friend and confidant to nine United States presidents. In April of 1996, because of modern communication technology, Billy Graham spoke to over 2 billion people at one time. I mean, shut up. What is happening? Now, here's my point. My point isn't that we should all be Billy Graham because we can't be like Billy Graham, but we can all be like Albert McMacken. Someone, someone had to invite that person, that next person, that other person to know Christ. And we can all be part of that. On February 19th, 1972, Yours truly invited a stunningly gorgeous 17-year-old girl to share a special youth meeting at my home church where she made a decision to follow Jesus. And that stunningly gorgeous 17-year-old girl became my wife, Beth, and the rest is history. My wife came to Jesus because I invited her to church. We're not all called to be evangelists, but we're all called to be witnesses, every one of us. And we can be invitational. Another thing we can be is relational. Are you listening? Are you following? Too many Christians wear blinders because they can't stand the thought of talking to some total stranger about Jesus. You know, it's it's too much. It's overwhelming. But, But we fail to see the opportunities in already existing relationships. People in our family, people in our associations, people in our friendship circles. We all have dozens of people like this. Let me ask you this question. If you are a follower of Jesus, and you've been a follower of Jesus for a little while now, are there any close associations in your life, family members, friends, associates in your life that you see on a regular basis? Are there any such people like that in your life where these people do not know that you are a follower of Jesus. If, that's distur- if your answer is yes and that's disturbing to you, then I have accomplished my goal. How is that possible? 
How is it possible as a follower of Jesus for people close to you not knowing that? Everyone in your circle should know that. So you have to use the relational equity that you have with these folks. And you don't have to know much. Here's, here's one thing you can do. It's very simple. I'll put it on the screen. You can tell your story. I don't know one verse of scripture. I've only been a Christian a short time. I don't know how to answer these questions. I, this is awkward for me. I have no capacity for this. And besides, I just, just, I'm, so, I'm so anxious to even think about doing it. That's okay. But one thing you can do is you can tell your story. Put your story in three parts. People, you may tell your story and people say, oh, I just don't believe that. That's not even possible. I don't believe that happened. Wait, you can't, you can't be refuted. It's your story. It happened to you. You know it's true. So tell your story in three parts. This was my life before I met Christ. These are the circumstances around the time I found Christ and met Christ. And this has been my life after discovering Jesus. Before, how I found him, and after. And you can just tell your story. There is enormous power in your story. Enormous power in your story. I've just mentioned Fouad Masseri, who's, who's uh, teaching for us in the chapel this morning uh, and is influencing thousands and thousands of Muslim peoples around the world through his ministry, Crescent Project. Every time I talk to Fouad, he always makes sure he thanks me for one thing. And Pastor Greg, thank you so much for leading my wife, Lisa, to Jesus. Because years ago, his wife, Lisa, before they had even met, Lisa was a student at Ball State University, started coming to Union Chapel because another friend of hers, a woman named Shauna, invited Lisa to come to church with her. And so Lisa starts coming to Union Chapel and hears the gospel and starts to wonder if this is an important an important relationship she should have. She talks to her friend Shauna enough that Shauna calls me and says, I want to bring my friend Lisa to your office, which they did. This is, this is back in the day when the, my office was out in the cornfield in a little church out there. So Shauna brings her friend Lisa to my office where I ask Lisa a few questions and I realize she's ready to say yes to Jesus. And so I pray with her right in my office and led her to Christ. And Lisa ends up becoming Fouad Masri's wife. So every time I see Fouad, he says, thank you so much for leading my wife to Jesus. It's so much better to be married to a woman who knows Jesus than it is not to me. But you see, you see the influence of that. And it just happens out of the natural connections that we already have. Here's my fourth P word. It's the word power. Again, the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as to proclaim to you the testimony about God. So here's the Apostle Paul admitting, look, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily smarter than anybody else, and I'm not more eloquent than anyone else. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, I have a single message. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and he died for the sins of the world. I claim to know nothing among you except that Jesus has died. He's been crucified, and it's now the hope of the world because your sins can be forgiven, and you can be made right with God and at peace with God and have hope for eternity. This is, this is the gospel. This is the wonderful news that God has offered to us in the world, and that's all he knows. 
And that's all he preached. So he said, my message, my preaching were not in wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And there it is. And that's it. This is the key to any effective influence from one life to another, that I've, that I've, been, re, I've been a recipient of God's presence and power through the Holy Spirit. And that gives my, gives my actions and my presence and my proclamation and all of the efforts I make in sharing a witness for Christ, the energy it needs and the transformative power that it needs in the life of others. And so we look to God's power. Lord, if you don't do it, it won't happen. If you don't help me, I can't manage it. This should be our daily prayer. This is the prayer I've prayed all these years every Sunday morning. Lord, please allow your spirit to rest on me so that I might say something that will help someone. That's it. The last uh, P word is prayer. 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. The God of this world has blinded the minds of of unbelievers, so they cannot, not might not, or, or shall not, it says they cannot, cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So here's the Apostle Paul again, suggesting to you that there are spiritual forces at work that literally blind people so they cannot see the hope of Christ. Maybe you were like this in your life. You, maybe your story is, I went for years you know, my wife or my husband, my friends were telling me about Jesus, and I just couldn't see it, couldn't get it. It's like I was blind to it because you were. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers, and so they can't see the light of Christ. And then one day, you heard something, you prayed something, you, you noticed something in another believer, and, and the, the light came on. And you went, wait, I can see it now. I can comprehend it. And this is why we should pray. You know, behind everyone who comes to faith, there's always someone behind that person praying for them and praying that the blinders will fall off, the scales will fall from their eyes so that they have discernment and vision in the spiritual realm. And so we pray. And we should pray for courage and boldness. Let me tell you one more story. Beth and I... Uh, while I was a student in grad school, pastored a small church in southern Indiana, Clarksville, Indiana. This is the New Albany, Jeffersonville area. The church and the parsonage uh, was two blocks from the Ohio River. The name of the church was Ohio Falls Church. And so that's where we lived for three years. We had just been married. Uh, our son Aaron was just a baby. And we moved into this modest little neighborhood. And right across the street from the parsonage, was a young family named the Haubers. This was Tim and Peggy Hauber. They had a couple of kids and their family was growing. Tim owned a small construction business company and they lived in a little 1,200 square foot, two bedroom house right across the street. In that first summer, uh, Tim saw me play in the church softball league. Now Tim and his company sponsored an industrial league team uh, which was a team filled with some of his employees and other friends of his from school and that sort of thing. These were, these were a bunch of guys, and they were, let me just say, they were rough. Uh, this was blue-collar. These guys, these guys uh, most of them, you know, worked a blue-collar job, and some of them were married, others of them weren't, but they were, they were rough. And 
Tim invited me to play because he'd seen me play in the church league and he, and he thought I could help, help his, his softball team, which I did. <laughs> Dramatically. It's not because I'm all that great. They were all drunk and stoned all the time and it's hard to hit that thing when you're... At the end of the first game... With the Zorbos, this was the name of the team, Z-O-R-B-O-S. I've never researched the name Zorbos, and I hope you don't either because I don't want to know what it means. It could, be, it could mean anything. Uh, or it could just be something corny or funny that they made up. I don't know, I, but I wouldn't mess with it. Zorbos. After the first game, we come off the field and we go into the parking lot, and this was ritual for them. Someone, before the game, would go to the liquor store and buy a case of beer, put it on ice, and so in the back of, uh, of one of the pickup trucks, there would always be beer on ice. And so I didn't know anything about this. And we went out to the parking lot and where these guys start reaching into this ice-cold beer. And they're passing beers around. And, and so Tim, my friend, reaches in for a beer and pushes it towards me. Um, you, if you're around me long enough, and some of you have been around me long enough to know, I, I, do, not, I do not succumb to peer pressure like that social pressure thing. It's because of my personality and just the way I'm wired and, and, that, and with my Christian convictions. There's some, you just, uh, for, when I went to kindergarten when I was five years old, you know, if all my friends were doing one thing, if I thought it was stupid, I wouldn't do it. I, I, don't, I don't suffer foolish behavior. I, I just never have. I'm not, I'm not normal that way. And so that kind of social peer pressure, it, it it didn't influence me. They, they thought that they would persuade me to drink a beer with them. And I knew they wouldn't. And so I played along with them. I said, no, no, I'm a, I'm a teetotaling Methodist. You know, you, I'm, you guys go ahead. It's, it's fine. I don't mind you drinking in front of me. It's great. You know, whatever you want to do. And, you know, teammates. And the second, the second week, the game was over. We went out in the parking lot. Now they had, it's like they conspired we're going to get Greg Paris to drink a beer if it's the last thing we do. And so they really put the full court press on, and, and I, just, I just pushed back and said, guys, look, look I'm not going to, no. And, and it, it wasn't just beer out at the truck. I was, I'm thinking, is it even right for me to be out here with these guys right now because I could see the headlines in the paper, you know, the next week, Methodist pastor gets arrested for, you know, whatever they're dealing out there. But I hung in there, and I, and I stayed with them. And so now we get to the third week, and the game's over, and we get in the parking lot, and everybody's reaching for cold beer. And my friend Tim reached in, and in this whole case of beer, there is one soft drink. It's a Coke. He pulls out a Coke, and he hands it to me. That is so thoughtful. Look at you. Thank you so much. That's nice. Um, I guess they felt bad because I was carrying the whole team, you know, during the, in the league. <laughs> so I just kept making friends with these guys, and especially my neighbor, Tim. One day he called and said, hey, listen, he said, uh, we're expecting our third baby. We only have two bedrooms in this house. He said, you know, I have a construction crew. He said, on Saturday this week, uh, my construction crew, as well as any of the guys off the team, are going to come to my house. We're going to take the roof off of my house. We're going to put a second story 
on my house and roof it and get it covered before the end of the day. We're doing it Saturday. If you can help, come on over. Well, I worked construction all four summers when I was in college, so, you know, I'm good to go. We built houses from the ground up back in the day, and so I just put my tool belt on and went across the street, and, and we did it. We took the top of his house off and put another story we, and had it papered and, and, and windows in the, in the windows before the end of the day. We did it in one day. which has skewed me now ever since I've tried to build things around here when I hear stories about you can't get that done in that timeline, and I just think, well, you just don't know what can be done. (laughs) And it was great, and we had a great time, and thankfully no one got drunk enough to fall off the roof, all that, so it was good. I was nailing nails and watching for guys so they wouldn't fall off the roof. One day we were shagging flies, you know, taking batting practice before a game in a big open field, and, and uh, one of the guys came over to me and waited till there wasn't anyone else in earshot, and he's kind of touching the ground with his feet. He looked up at me, and he said, Greg, he said, uh, he said I have an addiction problem, and my marriage, is, my marriage is in crisis. He said, I'm really scared. I don't know what to do. Can you help me? Yes. I can help you. And I got him some help. And so things like that happen a couple of other times with other players on the team. And then one day, my friend Tim called me and he said, and he was, you know, Tim, Tim's a big guy, you know, I'm, I'm 6'4", and Tim's about my height and my size, and, uh, you know, he owns a construction company, you know, and he, you know, he chews and spits, you know, he's, he's a man's man kind of a guy, so don't get the wrong picture here. He called me one day and he said, uh, Greg, he said, my dad is dying. He said, I don't know what to do. So I went across the street, just right across the street. And I sat with him for a while. And I cared for him. And then one day he called me and he said, Greg, my, my, dad, my dad died. And he said, I went out and bought a suit because I didn't own a suit. And he said, I have this tie. He said, I'm, I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but my dad's funeral is this afternoon, and I don't know how to tie my tie. Could you help me? And I went across the street, and I stood in front of the mirror with Tim in front of me, and we both stood there and cried. And I tied his tie for him. Looked good. Beth and I got a call one day, and it was time to move to Muncie, Indiana. And so we announced that we were leaving. And so one night, Tim said to me, listen, we're having a cookout over in my backyard with all the guys on the team, and we want you and Beth to come over, and we'll celebrate our friendship. And I said, that's really nice of you. Well, we came over. 
And so we got over there, and there were all these guys and all their wives and some of their children. It was a big party in the backyard. And we'd been there for about 30 minutes, and it was a great, great experience. And Tim got everyone's attention, and he said, he said, Greg, there's something I want you to, to notice here tonight. Uh, we're not drinking any alcohol. Only soft drinks here tonight. Everyone's, you know, they're giving me the business, holding up their Cokes. <laughs> and then he pulled out of his back pocket, had a kind of wrinkled up envelope. And he said, we also took up a collection for you. These, now, these guys didn't have any money. He said, we, we put $100 together. We got $100 together and wanted you to have it because they knew I was pitiful too. And then he pulled out this softball, this softball right here. And he said, um, we've all signed this. We wanted to give it to you so you'd remember us. Now, the, the ink's faded a bit, but uh, this has been a prayer list for me for 40 years. Just every, I keep it right on my shelf. All I have to do is stand up and reach for it, and I just go around this ball, and I pray for all these guys. We'd been in Muncie for about two years, and the phone rang one evening at our house. It was a Monday night. I picked up the phone, and it was my friend Tim Hauber. Tim said, a week ago, I took my wife and my kids to church for the first time. And yesterday, Sunday, I took them back to church again. And he said the pastor, when he got done with his sermon, asked if anyone there wanted to receive Jesus as their Savior. He said, I went forward, and they prayed with me, and I became a Christian. And he said, I'm calling you tonight because I wanted you to be the first one to know. With your presence, with your persuasion, with your intentional storytelling and proclamation, the power of the Holy Spirit, and God's inclination to answer prayer, you can make a difference in people's lives. You can influence them for Jesus' sake. Now, as we conclude this service this morning, I want you to think about people you know that you can provide presence, persuasion, proclamation with as God gives you strength and he hears your prayers. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you for the joy and privilege it is to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. What an amazing privilege. What a holy opportunity. There's nothing like it. What joy it is to see lives transformed by your Holy Spirit. So we pray that all of us, 
might have that same joy as we take our place of witness in the lives of others. Lord, we will do it if you will help us. And we know you will. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Would you stand with us?